Josh and I. Yeah, <laughs> this is us. Um, we've recently started working together on a project and just thought that today would be a good opportunity to talk a little bit about our personal histories with ritual performance and then what we're actually working on now and yeah, trying to tease out some of those, uh, the differences in, in the methodologies that we've kind of mm -hmm. both bringing together and how that's forming. Um, the idea was to bring in a few of our relics from our performances to show. I totally forgot mine, um, but I have some um, a website that I can uh, go to to show you some images. So those that are listening, if you want to go to Helen Milroy WordPress, oh, sorry, dot WordPress dot com. Yeah, I think there's going to be a link anyway with this that you can go to, and you can follow along. Um, so, my name's Helen Milroy, Algu woman, that's East Pilbara region, and I'm working and living and playing in Waliyup, which is a Wajak country for the Nuna Nation. So, I just like to pay uh, my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, <coughs> so, my name's uh, Joshua Pepper, and I'm um, Kathleen, so it's, uh, Central Queensland, um, and I've been living on Wajat Mungan country since 2012. And yeah, I like to pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. And yeah. that's some background noise there. That's cool. <laughs> cool. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about my own ritual performance history. Um, it's fairly unique and it's not something I actually talk about much because it's really personal and private sort of experience to go through. So I think as a, an artist I've kind of kept my profile relatively um, visible <laughs> until recently. So here I am and maybe it's time to talk about these things mm -hmm. uh, and, and share this with others which is, has been a hope of mine for a long time. Um, because I've got so much out of this process, I've always wanted others to experience what I've experienced. So it all began, I guess, in about 2004, doing contemporary performance. And we had to start doing, as anyone who's worked in contemporary performance knows, you, you start asking questions within and moving with that and sort of getting into your body and, and becoming present to your body as a sort of as, as a tool for sensing. And when I started to go in and ask those questions, I tapped into something, I guess the shadow self, the unconscious self, the void, um, this <laughs> sense of kind of like evil almost. And it freaked me out and I thought, okay, I don't think this class format is going to help me work through these things. So I jumped courses and went into uh, sculpture and when it came time to do a uh, an exhibition at Gombok Gallery we all had to pick a site I thought this is a great opportunity to explore myself freely uh, without it being in the sort of structure of a class and what I found is I kept trying to come up with ideas from my head and I could come up with a million ideas from my head. It was it was easy, but everything felt contrived and preconceived or political 
and just lacking in some sort of life essence and I wanted to tap into life and this is where this kind of passion to merge life and art together rather than them imitating each other to actually bring life and art into into my my process of creating doing so I started meditating every day and just asking for uh, guidance or the intent was to have guidance um, or a vision or something uh, that I could work with and trust in and build this kind of semiotics of my work around without necessarily knowing what it meant and so it was a three-month process where I started journaling different sort of synchronistic experiences that would happen to me for example I was sitting at a bus stop and there was a white bird and a black bird and a hawk <laughs> circling them and on above a, a lamppost so there's obviously some sort of symbolic encounter that's going on that made its way into my work um, certain things I might be gifted along the way I was gifted some red ochre a copper pot um, yeah and different symbols kept sort of talking to me or I'd have uh, words that kept coming into my mind so I had this one word across against my chest that worked its way into the, the work and and this urge to get in the mud I just wanted and I thought the work originally was just going to be me swimming in the mud um, but it just kept um, emerging and unfolding and eventually I got to this point which I'll show you on the screen where I set up a crucifix oh, I don't know my password <laughs> a crucifix in the bottom of this muddy valley and I'm sorry the image is so poor I have lost all my documentation from this period this is the last remaining thing that was in the catalogue so in the bottom of the ravine there was this crucifix and the reason that was there was because every time I shut my eyes I'd just see this light kind of angle and so this was the symbol that kind of kept coming into the, my dreaming during this time and didn't go so any time something would come up I'd also let it go and release it and certain things would just keep sticking to me. I can't remember how the wedding dress got involved I think there was some sort of thinking around um, you know with the cross this duality of opposites coming together and this sort of unity theme was coming through and I got given some hawk feathers which became that ring around the cross anyway without sort of knowing what I was doing I just uh, found myself walking into the ravine with um, a bouquet of feathers that were blowing in the wind behind me it was just gorgeous <laughs> imagery and my friend was naked and, and had it already covered herself in the mud and she was tapping on tapping sticks um, while I came down and then I, I stood up against the cross and she nailed the wedding dress into the cross and then cut me out of it and then I went over to where I had uh, caught the rainwater in a copper pot and had this bowl of this red ochre and I dipped my hand in the water and then I dipped my hand in the red ochre and just put this cross against my chest this big red ochre cross, it was stunning <laughs> and, um, and then went back into the, the, the muddy pit and united myself with with the earth and then the earth with the wedding dress and the cross and allowed sound to just release out of my body because there was this 
moment where I've, I've brought all this stuff together and now it's up to me to merge myself with it, communicate with it, see what it wants to tell me, see if there's anything that needed to be expressed. Because that's what I was giving myself over to was for life to just kind of come through me and be that vessel. And so some weird sort of grunting happened. <laughs> um, I was pretty new to it. I wasn't quite ready to speak in tongues. Um, uh, and then we, we united me and my friend and just sat with this purple um, sari over us and meditated for 10 minutes just to sort of reflect and solidify that moment. And then we just left it. And it just happened. Uh, we went there, I think we were putting some things on the site and then just decided, let's just do it now. And didn't tell anyone and there was families that had, were walking past and they were just watching on and, and uh, that was quite enjoyable. I think for me, I, I'd started it so I was naked when I looked up and see, oh, there's a family. <laughs> um, but you just, you're in a different space. Anyway, this was my first bookmark and I call it a bookmark because it's this signpost of something that happened when I immersed myself in the real. Um, and while I don't necessarily know what it meant at the time, I just knew that it would speak to me at some point in time, that it was this bookmark for me. Something significant had happened and and that and it had its own life so we would meet again and a few years ago we met again and that was you know so this was in 2005 it's been a long time before it spoke to me again and then I realized uh, I'd I'd crucified marriage <laughs> you know I just crucified the romantic construct of love and united myself with spirit and had an alchemical marriage of myself, my own masculine and feminine energy. So it was quite a big thing that I'm just, I kind of rocked on into without really knowing. Um, and since then, I think I've engaged that same process, but through different mediums. <coughs> so after that, I went on a journey around Australia for about five years, just living in faith and hitching around and meeting different amazing people, people that you, you only think exist in <laughs> Eastern movies, <laughs> like they're magical people. Um, and eventually I came back to philosophy. <coughs> and uh, philosophy gave me an understanding and a language for sort of what I was doing with the ritual performance. Um, in overcoming constructs of the mind in having this uh, symbolic death of the ego in order to um, be present to truth and now in life. Um, and it's taught me a lot about the inner motivations of the human unconscious that, that blocks that for us. So the fear of death being a major one. Um, and how the fear of death is projected onto sex as well. And so sex becomes a taboo. And, um, and then the gender relations between men and women with women's association with sex and the body and the animal. Um, and how sort of spirit has like a, any kind of transcendent experience is kind of being uh, pecked away so that we have this purely materialist perspective on life. 
and it's to be shunned if you or irrational for you to live intuitively or any other way but I wasn't going to let it get me down so <laughs> I did, did my masters in biological art but before that I did a live blog of a journey that I had with Blazing Swan because my life started to take a lot of really weird turns and I thought something's happening here something significant's happening so I'm going to live blog my journey start paying attention to these signs and symbols and synchronicities that are coming my way and see what happens and um, there was quite a few people like I guess involved in the Blazing Swan community that were watching on and and a lot happened I became like a temple guardian and set up a camp which was a massive learning experience um, but there was like these pirate flag that wanted to get put on the temple that year and there was a whole story behind this because the temple builder wanted everyone to make that was involved in the build to put something significant to them on the temple and one of these guys had made a flag with a swan being ridden by a skeleton having a drink and it was awesome and it actually suited the temple but they weren't allowed to put on on the temple because it had created this controversy within a community that's supposed to be all-inclusive so I ended up rescuing the flag and no the pirates camp had rescued this flag and then I'd become a custodian of it and they, they, were, they were holding it for me and I became this pirate nun through this strange synchronistic experiences and I was like all right somehow I'm a pirate nun I don't know what that means <laughs> <laughs> I gotta figure this out that's okay yeah so I came through this this weird experience of blazing swan and um then I did a master's and I was like okay well I'm gonna do my master's through this persona of the pirate nun that I've been given and go on another journey and I found this boat called a death boat lifeboat I think I've got some pictures and it was uh, like a bronze flame uh, frame uh, sculpture What's going on mm, actually I might not have a picture of that but there's a different boat <laughs> this is the exhibition of the, the pirate nun's journey um, where it ended up and um, yeah so basically it started with this sculpture that I I found sort of tucked under a tree in, in the indigenous school of studies at UWA and it was just abandoned and I thought well as a pirate and I, I need a boat and the death boat lifeboat looks like a pretty good boat to me so I put a caveat on it and claimed it in the name of the pirate nun um, and warned them um, with a bloody thumbprint <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what was coming for them and uh, little did I know that this boat was highly spiritually significant and had its own lessons to teach me so I have relics of that journey which I I won't disclose too much about them because there's so much personal shadow work involved in this stuff that I don't think is for everybody's ear, ears yeah um, but one of these cool relics this is a, 
uh, another bronze sculpture that I happened across during this journey while I was, um, I'd had some weird things that happened to me <laughs> and with the people that I'd met that I was kind of following the spiritual lead to. Someone had said that I was a mermaid and I was biologically still stuck in a part mermaid body and evolving into my human form and still getting my legs. And I really related to that uh, from some various experiences I'd had growing up, for instance, um, swimming in my bathtub as a kid like this all the time, like I was a fish and chipping my tooth. I kind of consider it my mermaid initiation. <laughs> and, um, and when I used to go to the beach, the fish would always swim around my feet. And so there's always been this connection. <laughs> So I'd been going to Geraldton to chat with this pirate monk and explore the Batavia shipwreck to uh, compare myself against Geronimus Cornelius, the pirate, to see what kind of a pirate nun I was and what the pirate represented. And it's not a murdering rapist, so you can feel safe about that. It's actually about independence and freedom um, and the pirate not wanting to, it being anti-slavery. and. When I went back to Geraldton to sort of chase up this mermaid theme, <laughs> go, well, maybe I'm a mermaid. Let's see if there's any evidence for this. I found this object sitting in the second-hand shop. And uh, I, I went into the guy, I was like, what are they, you know? And he's like, hands them to me, and he's like, who are you? <laughs> and I'm like, um, <laughs> he's like, there's an interesting story about how I got these. And... Um, he says, uh, they were dug up by somebody who was planting a garden and I'm not going to charge you anything more than what I got for, like, than what I paid for them. And I was like, are these things cursed or something? Like, what's going on? I don't know. And then someone mentioned they might have been a murder weapon. There was a dent on them. And there was all these kind of whispers from the community about these <laughs> objects. And then... I realised that when I'd first gone to Geraldton, there was this picture of a guy called Krabby Davis in the museum with an eye patch, and I thought, this is going to be my spirit guide <laughs> for this journey. And next to him was this wedding cake that he'd made out of seashells. And I realised that this was his artwork. And I went on a mission to prove that and track his history around the mines, the copper mines, and his history in the jail, whether he had the skills to forge this. Um, and turns out that these were a fountain piece on a wedding gift for his daughter. <laughs> but they'd been sawed off, and the theory is, is that they were a murder weapon as well that were buried. <laughs> but I don't know. So I may have a murder weapon in my, evidence in my, in my relic <laughs> kit. <laughs> um, but I, I looked into the significance of these and this became the pivotal sort of object of my discovery as the pirate nun because they represent uh, that freedom from slavery in the transatlantic slave period when the Jubilee was happening and the, the printing press had just gone out and people were uh, reading about the year of the, the oppressed when God is on the oppressed side and they actually used the Bible philosophy to like overthrow their their keepers um, and so it 
kind of became part of the sort of message of the pirate nun and, and, and what was needing to be expressed at the time. And it turned out that that particular year was prophesied to be the final jubilee that we'll have biblically according to the prophet Daniel. So I'm just doing my duty and passing on the message <laughs> that's come through me with that. And uh, after that, I started looking into uh, miracles and science and placebo. And I wouldn't say that was so much my ritual performance methodology anymore. It was up to that point, I think, my path changed and it became more about uh, ritual performance in the sense of performing a scientific act in the lab and the science of rituals and working with living cells as performance and what that kind of relationship means. But for me, I wanted to look at myself as the living organism that's the artwork and also the artist and tease out the boundaries of playing God over nature and even over ourselves, like ourselves is something that we're manipulating. We manipulate ourselves. Um, and then I've met Joshua <laughs> after I've explored all of this crazy stuff and he just comes and sits down at the table one day, just down here. <laughs> And we meet and he starts um, telling me that he's got this kind of project that he's interested in me coming on with. He had no idea really what I'd been doing. You said you were a stage manager. <laughs> yeah, I'm a stage manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, he inspired a totally new sort of thinking for me because he came and he, he wanted to deal with Ritual performance is a way of dealing with the trauma in the body, but also in the site, in a particular location. Or was yours just the site? Mine was just Emmett, but at the body. The body. You ended up, we'll talk more about it, but you ended up more being at the site. I think it came from yeah. your philosophy, though, because you yeah. wanted to make a monument. Yeah. yeah. So he had this idea. I'm going to let Josh talk about it now yeah. and hand it over there. Okay. Well, I don't even know anything about it. <laughs> 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 you know, um, but yeah, there's so many parallels that um, mm. as a ritual performer, that you know, death is a big thing. Um, growing up in Mount Isa, <coughs> I don't know if actually been to Mount Isa, but it's a very bright country, like sort of like the sun's a bit like this, and it's really intense. The landscape's really vivid, but at night it takes on a different feeling. It's quite dark and sinister. Um, there's actually stories of people disappearing and not coming back and, you know, reappearing decades later or something like that. So it's very magical. Um, so I remember, like, when I was growing up in my house in Mount Isa, um, often hear things at night and often witness really weird things. So um, I've always had this sort of, I suppose, thing that the weirdness follow me throughout my life. And so I took a totally different pathway and chose um, pharmacy. <laughs> and and um, sort of went down that um, pathway for, a, well, still do it, but I'd probably more 
align myself in this sort of world now, and I'm trying to anyway. And so I, for some reason, um, thought I was a dancer. That was sort of what I had in my mind. But I think, you know, analysing that, I feel it was based on the fact of someone's opinion about me and how much that mattered. And the person that gave me that opinion was quite prominent at the time in the dance community. And so I've sort of held on to that as like, yes, I've got something to offer in terms of that. <laughs> and, you know, I think through that journey, I ended up into performance art. Um, and along that way, I met various different collaborators. A really good collaborator of mine I actually met through Critical Path in New South Wales and Wei Zen Ho, who was also recently part of the Kia competition award, which I was also recently in. And we met and just don't know what it was about, but what, what drew us together, but we just had an instant connection between those four of us. There was me, Weizen, Alison Flavie, and Genoa Yela. And I think Weizen and I just connected straight away. And we just had this unspoken connection about something that we had experienced as, you know, growing up. And the other two hadn't and weren't really in that world that we were in. And I think, like, um, the things that happened during residency, I remember, like, she asked me to um, um, video this um, incident, um, sort of witness this um, performance that she was going to do. It, it was at Bundanon, and it was in one of the um, in one of the studios there. And I remember, like, just she told me just to, you know, to record it on the camera. And I went, okay, cool, we'll do that. And I remember like when she, we'd been, prior to that, we'd been at um, Bathurst and we were at a, a museum and we were told to like, I don't know, take prints of these fossils or something like that. And so she had this like really old print of an ammonite, um, which is like a, it's like an ancient sort of um, mollusk or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so she was looking at that while I was recording this. And I remember to this day, like, how her body just changed. It was sort of like something from, I don't know, like almost like a horror movie, but not necessarily in that context. Just the body just melted away and I could see her actually becoming the Ammonite. And before I knew it, just in the corner, like this, and you know, most contorted position that I've not seen any sort of most flexible person ever do. And she's not flexible at all, but I think just because of the fact that she was so invested in history of this object that she actually started to become that object and then that's when we started to look at this idea called transmission which was introduced as through this process called the reckoning which we'll talk about later on um, and that's when i did workshops where i would get people to look at natural objects and i would get them to look at it and try to imagine that history and so there's so much information in that in that information in that particular object. You don't need to research it; it's all there. And so there's. It was interesting. I went for the work, first workshop I did, which was back with um, Tone. I think it was Tonest. Um, it was it was part of um, a festival, and they asked me to do the workshop. And most everybody got it except for the dancers. <laughs> like. For some reason, they just couldn't get into that history. 
And it's interesting because I think as, as a dancer, you're like, you lose your imagination a lot because you're often told what to do or the creation aspect is through a, a component that is beyond the body. It's often the mechanics, it's often the aesthetics, it's often something else, but it's never to do with the actual soul of the body. That's often taken away a lot from the dance, I felt. And so, you know, like really trying to understand history or something that you don't really know, but we'll tell you anyway. And there was a really beautiful moment where I think Sandra McKendrick um, had a weed. And she, it was, that was some of the objects we bought with this particular um, workshop. And for some reason, she felt the need to actually put it in her mouth and go, like she was nourishing it. And she told the story afterwards that she felt so sad and she said that all the, every time we see this thing, we just pull it out and that, you know, it has its own life, it has its own meaning, but we never really, we just disregard it. And so she felt this urge to actually try and save this thing, even though over you know, periods, periods of time, we often just pull them out as a solution just to get rid of them. Um, and so that's, you know, history is a big part of my practice, a massive part of my practice. And um, people I collaborate with often hope that they have that same to them, you know, in curiosity, if you wish, in terms of that. And um, so I think that's like, one aspect of it, and then the other element is the light and the dark. The dark is definitely a big part of it. And I've been called everything under the sun, <laughs> from witchcraft as Satanist to all sorts of things like that. Like, um, yeah, I did this performance in Melbourne, and um, it, the review was never published. Um, and the person that actually um, who did the review is actually quite a famous author. I might say who they are, but. Um, they just were horrified that I was allowed on stage and that I was, if any, if I'd been on stage any longer, I was going to possess them. And I thought, wow, how <laughs> What a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. When I heard that story, I knew I wanted to work with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love a bit of satanic panic. Yeah, I'm a fun person. It's like, wow. And like, you know, and think of the children was the other thing. It's like, oh, <laughs> a Simpsons thing. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I often use that a lot in my, so when I talk about myself, I think it's quite funny. But I think like... It was the, a rather... It was a rather... Provocative. Provocative. Act. Yeah, yeah it was. It was. And I think like, you know, <laughs> that then led to other performances. But I think it was the one performance that I went to in New York that really, I don't know, there was an energy that just sort of went boom. And took me off, um, and I've never really looked back. And it was not my work, but I was part of it. And it was work by S.J. Norman, who's um, that he's a performance artist as well. And they asked me to be part of this, and I sort of knew them, but I didn't really know them. And we were part of the same um, sort of um, performance program at Performance Space in New York, and. Um, <clears throat> I we I was so we was everything was so ill prepared like it was just it was nothing I've ever been involved in and it was and what would eventually end up with happening was that there was going to be made there was going to be 32, 36 incisions on the back of this person um, to represent um, the deaths in custody that had happened throughout 
all of this country. And so I think like when you look back at it, you can't really prepare for something like that. And so we went to their hotel room and I was the person that was going to guide the audience through this journey, as in like bring them up, they're going to be part of it, witness it and so forth. And, um, and I was just sort of like giving very basic instructions for something so powerful. And, um, I don't know, like, uh, I suppose, uh, well, for me, it was a massive turning point. And um, it just sort of like turned into chaos that night. I just like was like bringing people up. And I don't have a massively loud voice, and Americans are quite loud, and they like to hear their voice a lot. And I was just like trying to project and couldn't really project a lot. And I was like, doing and like uh, bringing people up from the fire and then they were in this room and performance space and there was uh, there were two other people that were uh, doing these offerings um, that you as audience yet to give either which is a marking which is still here this marking that I've got on my finger and then there was something else that happened and then there were people that fainted and it was just chaos like there was just absolutely chaos and it was just like the people that fainted and we, then the audience grabbed them so no one knew what to do. I was like, what the hell are we doing? And I just grabbed this person, took them out. Um, it was, and it went on for, I think it went on for like four hours, but once again, everyone involved didn't have any idea of the time. And I had to actually try to, because I was the person controlling, can try to control all this, this chaos. And I think at the end of it, like I realized that I didn't need to control it and it was in control as it was. Like it was everything that was happening at that point in time course of what the power of, of what we were doing was actually controlling us and so at the end when the blood was collected we then took it to the Brooklyn River and then that was off there there's an offering and I think after that once again this work was quite boarded um, got massive um, like both positive and negative, so it's like sort of polar thing, which is often happening a lot with my work. No one, there's sort of this interesting thing where everyone just either hates it or loathes it, loves it, or they adore it, and that's disgusting. It's just this interesting thing that it's never really in between. Love is a trigger of death. Yeah, it's if it's in between, then I know I've not done my job, mm -hmm. and so that's always a worrying thing for me. Um, but I think since that time, I've sort of felt like the power from that moment on has just driven me towards, I think, this calling. And, you know, what my work may have been like dark and, you know, it was sort of, I suppose, exploring my own personal trauma, my own personal history, I think has now turned into something more light and more, I don't know, spiritual, <laughs> if you wish. Um, so you go from this journey from like lightness into darkness and I think it always comes back into that sort of thing anyway, but it's all interconnected it's not like separate from each other and um yeah so, the, so it's interesting like when i went to the kia um the work i bought i think everyone's expecting like you know blood guard score or something rather you know, trauma mm -hmm. the sort of thing i'm known for and like one of the reviews was vicky van hoot wrote that um something along the lines of um that she saw she knew me and that she um had met me for this mentoring program and that we talked about this project, which is the one that we did, the reckoning. But initially, the idea was that it was um, it was this um, scenario where I would bring tourists to 
along a boat and they'd be shark fodder. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was, which, and then also she wrote that she saw the work in performance space and just about childhood trauma and so forth. And so she was quite surprised about, once again, so quite surprised about this offering I was giving to the Kia. And everyone else was quite totally surprised because they'd never really seen me work in this sort of, I suppose, quite spiritually enlightening way. It sort of feels like. The reckoning? No, no, with the Kia work. Yeah. Kia? What's yeah. the Kia? Yeah, the one that you saw. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just like totally quite a different journey. Um, and yeah, so I think that's where I'll start to show you these. Um, so I think over the journey, um, one of the things that I've learned is that everything that is involved in the ritual um, has to be kept. And so this is from the reckoning. Yeah. And it's from this moment where um, in the work where I think we've done we're up to the we sort of set it out and it was a seven hour durational performance. So we did morning, uh, mid-afternoon and then space later in the day and then there was lunch break um, and I think we're into the last portion of it and I thought like we'd done I thought we'd done seven hours yeah we, then, all did. <laughs> we all had this moment where we're like oh we're still here we're, we're still, still here. going we're still gonna go <laughs> and um, we Janine um, for some is, is another like, third part of this particular performance um, it's not here, unfortunately. Um, she went out and looked at the time, and she was like, shit, it's like three hours yet. Um, <laughs> so she was trying to communicate that to us, but obviously we are in this moment of like just being, in, and we were sort of like going through like all the, the score that we had, yeah. that we developed, and I think we just exhausted everything we had. Mm. And it was at this point that this, you bought a gum tree leaf, country ranch, <laughs> yeah. and there was ochre. And these things had never been used in the performance. And they were sort of placed um, at the front where the audience were. And um, yeah, like for some reason, I don't know what happened, we ended up in this position. Do you know if there's any photos of this? Yeah, we've got some photos. Yeah, um, of that particular moment. And this performance was like a bit of the philosophy behind it was we were trying to deal with trauma in a site but realised that in order to the TV is turning off. On the in order to reckon with Time in order to reckon with the site you had to reckon with yourself so that you could actually see the site for what it is and so this process was a way of us going within and uh, tapping into whatever might be there in our bodies that's kind of blocking us and then um, looking into the history of the site and finding our connection to those histories and letting those histories present themselves through us in this improvisational way where we would develop um, a few words from the different historical texts uh, or from our impressions of those texts and a few gestures and that's all we had to 
improvise with and so each of us would have our own kind of history and personal narrative that we're moving around the space with and that's creating new narratives and new moments um, and this moment that Josh is talking about uh, was where those kind of narratives have sort of naturally come to a close and we went off text and we went off of our own personalities and it became a transpersonal space. Um, which <laughs> was was kind of funny and pretty intense. Uh, I'd been sort of running around the floor, some hip thrusting movements, saying fish, fish, or I've been used for hunting, I think was coming up and there was this whole uh, deeper personal interplay that came with that of my own journey where I started to relate to, to the trauma of, of being a fish that's used for hunting. Um, and yet I was actually just engaging with the, the site this, uh, from the heritage survey uh, where the fish were, and, but it had just merged together so completely. So we have a video, but we also have lots of pictures. Do you want me to show some pictures? We found a picture of life that's there from the moment that this comes from. It was a seven hour performance. So that image there is where this originated from. Um, there you go. <laughs> well, like, um, maybe not. There you are. So, um, where Hello was in one position, Janine was in one position. And then it, instinctively I need to grab this and then just to like do this thing where I do that. And then eventually That's over the time. Red on the ground? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, and then yoga, but that came, I think. It was like I was given kind of birth yeah. at the time and then there's this sort of umbilical cord that kind of come out of me yeah. or a spine or something. We had different interpretations, interpretations of what it was. And then so I started doing this with the, the thing and then eventually over time this just disappeared, disintegrated. So I would just like whip it, whip it on the floor and it's like all the leaves would come off and then that sort of thing. And it was, and as you can see, like the um, residue of that um, then was collected because I felt that was the most that was a really powerful moment and you, you need to keep it, like you can't throw it away. Um, this is also part of your props um, as well. As this was the Kia project I did, so this is all the burning that was done um, and the stuff that we wrote to each other. But for me, like keeping these things is, is important. And also I don't, as part of my practice, I don't wash my costumes. Um, I find that that actually takes away the energy that's imbued in that. And so for me, I actually have a whole, the last work I did, Jupiter Alding, like it's in an Adidas bag, and all the costumes haven't been washed since 2018. <laughs> so it stinks like all, all that. So, <laughs> but I mean, that's just like, for me, it's just really important to keep everything. And I think this is also something I learned from Way Zone as well um, that, you know, or if you do take something, bring it back to where it's from. Hmm. You try not to discard it because it's all part of the process. Um, but yeah, that for me was probably the moment that I entered into a space where it sort of felt like I'd gone into a trance. And I think, and it, interestingly, when you watch the video, um, 
both because both of them are on that side, and I end up looking at what was a fire that we had like a, a candle, you know, like a little thing. And I remember like sitting there, and it looks like when you watch the video, actually, like it's frozen, like there's like there's been editing to it, but it's actually not. It's just me just being just uh, click just click somewhere. It's not yeah. blue. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Anyway, that's, yeah, so it's, yeah, I think it's like those moments that, you know, you try that moment there. Mm. Um, but when watching on the video, I'm so still. And then Janine and Hella sort of start to move, but I'm not moving. And it looks like it's been edited, but it's not been edited. So this is really like, I don't know, spiritual things that come through that as a performer you just can't replicate and it's that sort of thing I'm interested in like trying to create on stage but it's hard work and you need the right people involved um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but um, yeah I just think like for me that's this represents like everything that happened that day and that's why I've kept it and you know it'll be part of the next work when we go back in next week next year um, I think that's a good time to... I'm looking forward to wearing my same unwashed costume. Mm. Oh, great. That's a great <laughs> idea. I can imagine one day there'll just be rags. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so on the reckoning process, uh, it's definitely something that's more inclusive than my own personal journey and process. This one is directed differently. It's directed at, at a location and it's uh, something that can be shared amongst multiple practitioners. Um, and the idea Josh wanted to, uh, he, went, he went to Berlin. This is, oh yeah, 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 I went, yeah, I went to Berlin and I think like for me, once again, this idea of the spiritual, um, I find that city to be quite um, indifferent to that. Um, well, it should change. When I first went there, I found the city to actually be, um, it seemed to memorialise a lot of what happened. Everywhere you went, there's monuments to that massive atrocity in human history. And you can't sort of not know about it. Like it's in front of people's doorsteps as soon as you step out. It's like, you know, you go around the corner, like this happened or so forth. But everyone was sort of like, so I suppose indifferent to it. And that sort of like felt like a party city. And I think that's the reason why they partied so much and never slept. Because they just can't they can't deal with it, and so they just like try to, I suppose, uh, um, it, eject that energy in some other way. Um, and so for me, I was wondering, like, in reflection to a city that actually memorialises something in Australia, you don't have any memorials of anything really. You have to go find them, and they're usually not well known, or they just no one wants to know where they are. And so for me, that was a really big part of the reckoning, was to try to memorialise um, these atrocities that happened on this country. And so the initial idea was, because Rottenest Island, me being here in WA, I thought that's probably the most logical place to start. But then, you know, obviously I'm not part of this country, so there's all sorts of issues regarding that. Um, but Initially, the idea was to bring sharks to the islands, which shut off the islands, so no one could go there. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily to kill people or to like set feet into the sharks, but it ended up like, because I remember pitching that idea 
And of course, when you tell that to black, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I just loved it. And all the aunties and uncles, <laughs> like, the eyes just lit up. Um, <laughs> and, um, but then, you know, there's obviously logistics behind, like, you know, what if the tourist gets eaten by a shark and all sort of business, so they can think about fake news, like, you know, making this fake news, things like no, 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 there must be another way. So, I'd, so the other thing we, I thought it was a marathon in, re, in, reflect, in reflection to what I did in New York, which is sort of a marathon in a way, where you, we would actually run the length of Rottnest Island for the amount of people that were buried there. So I think it was... I can't remember exactly the number. There's more. There's probably more. But we were going to mm. run that amount of kilometres. Mm. And so that was why I initially had someone else in mind to do that work. <laughs> but obviously, health becomes a problem when you start to get older. And so then that changed. And then so that's when I sort of went, okay, what can I do? Still keeping in, in the same sort of, um, sort of frame of mind and sort of that same concept. How can I go about the reckoning process? But it also allowing that sense of endurance to occur because I like as a practitioner I like endurance and I also like um, a, a physicality of intensity of some sort of intensity um, and so how do I do that um, without you know shutting up the island so sharks can circle it or running 150 k's around an island, <laughs> around an island. Um, yeah so we went I think we just sort of like all three of us got into Higa brainstormed about ways to do this and yeah I think we just came up with something quite uh, no two weeks it felt like two, two weeks but I had a lead start with um, yeah. philosophically yeah. analyzing and theorizing about what this project was and how it could work so Josh had given me this concept of a monument duration trauma in the site and acknowledging that and and I you know, my work likes to transmute and transcend stuff. So I wanted to bring in an element that didn't just focus on the trauma and get stuck there, but actually uh, could break through and resolve that or at least find a way of uh, resolving it in yourself so that you can reckon with it. And so that, that breakthrough moment that we had mm. was was it's like what we were that. aiming so that. To, to get to, um, we just didn't know what it looked like. And so there was a lot of um, personal journey work that we did in this two-week period, um, looking at our own shadows and taking note of our own relationships with each other as well and how those shadows were playing out amongst us and then hitting the floor with that and, you know, being in an archetype. So I think I had the prude. Uh, so I was like, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right, you know, you've got to do it better. And that affected someone else's shadow, which was the wounded healer. And it was like, I just feel like I'm not doing it right. But I'm just like, we're living out our, our roles. And eventually that really hit me because, and I think I ended up crying in the, in this, in this space and be, because I, I understood, I had the compassion for the wounded healer too. And it was like, oh, my prude is aggravating this situation because I just want to get this done <laughs> and um, so there's a lot of self-accountability that you have to go through in that space and, and remain open to having those transitions and tra transformations um, and then bringing in the that 
improvisational element uh, with with our personal journey aside, but with the historical narratives in our relationship to those, have helped us to acknowledge the site and to actually give a voice to the site itself. And in that way, we became like a living monument to the history of that site and a voice for that yeah. site to communicate through. Yeah. Um, I have to say, if it, has, if it wasn't for Hella being on board with this project, that would never have happened. We would have been so different. Like <laughs> the fact that we were able to take our trauma, not only from our personal, but place it into the side, it became even more powerful. Because then, for me, she gifted me the mythological side, <laughs> which is so, like, I do feel I'm a myth. Like, I think I'm from this world, I really don't. And so that's like, without her actually knowing that, it was funny, like, she uncannily knew, like, what our sites were about. I'll really elaborate on that. So, we, uh, when we got there, we asked Pika to give us their, any historical documentation they had on the site, and that, one of that was a heritage survey. And it went through and it had different labels for different sites that you'd have in, in a heritage survey, and one of them was, uh, like, the mythological sites, so uh, where our ancestors had left um, significant um, objects to do with the dreaming or whatever is going on or practice ceremony and um, there was another site that was I think a, there was middens where they kind of uh, you know where you collect things and store things and I noticed Janine was Cache always cashing yeah. <laughs> collecting things and storing them and yeah. Josh had this thing about what was it? It was about um, being in, was it being invisible? Yeah, invisible. About being invisible, and so I saw this sort of idea. He was like a mythological site, and uh, I had something going on with fish. So the the fish skeleton sites became my site, and so um, we also like I I'd seen these kind of connections. So I, my offer to each of them was like, why don't you work with these sites? But of course, you don't have to do that. If there's a different one that you resonate with, go with that. And Jenning found a couple and so we took our, our gestures and movements for that and I think what was interesting is when we, it's different every time, so when we first sort of practiced it to see if it even worked, uh, we'd had set words and set gestures that we would move with, um, but then on the actual final performance, I think the words that came out of mine were completely different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like, where did that come from? Um, which I think might have thrown the group a little bit because it's like, are we doing what we rehearsed? <laughs> <laughs> or like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm like, well, you can't. I'm no. just, this is what I'm feeling from this right now. So, so there's a great freedom in that as well, um, which I think opens it up for many different people, from many different backgrounds to participate in as well. But we've got another residence coming up, which I think will help us to communicate better uh, to get others involved, because we've sort of just figured it out for ourselves. So now we need to work on, yeah, how we deliver it and get that participation. Should we show the video? Yes, yeah, show a video. Segue into video. Just did some great production here and got a great videographer yeah. <laughs> involved. <laughs> Um, I'll go the long one. It's not the entire seven-hour performance. This is just a promotion video for about ten minutes. But you can watch the entire seven-hour performance if you'd like. Mum did. <laughs> oh, so it's on there. Yeah, it's, on Facebook, it's just on the yeah. Facebook live. Yeah. The reckoning 
initially it involved quite an extreme idea. And I think really the, the idea came from when I was in Berlin. And when I was in Berlin, there was like all these acknowledgements of what happened there, the history. The city never really forgot and hasn't forgotten to this day. Everywhere you walk, even like outside a house, for instance, there's these little plaques that sort of say, so-and-so was taken on this date. When I look at other situations throughout the world, there's not really that same sense of contrition, if you wish, in regards to what happened in the past. And so I feel that when I came back to Australia, there was really no look here. <laughs> Even though there's heaps and heaps of sites that could potentially you know, have a similar thing. And so I felt like, you know, what, is, what, what am I, as an artist, how can I contribute to that sort of story? And that's where this project came from, really. I got speaking with Josh, found out all this interesting stuff about his previous work, and I found that was really engaging and interesting, first and foremost. And then next, I sort of out of nowhere, he approached me about this work, and I was hustling back and forth with it as a philosopher who has to understand everything and all the distinctions between things. It was a really real struggle to understand Aboriginal context and how that could be applied to this Bhutto inspiration, as well as this idea of a monument and, and bringing it all together. I did an exercise with Josh Pepper where we had to share energies and the energy between us was quite electric and so from that Josh and I started talking about his project and it kind of just felt right, even though I'd never done anything like this before, Josh trusted me to participate. And we had a meeting with Pika and I just sort of dumbled out my words one day and said, do you have any history on And then he handed us all these heritage survey reports from when they were turning this into an arts facility. It did make me look deeper into how this is going to work as a methodology moving forward as well and how history comes into this and is history, is the historical component just written text or is it people's stories finding the narrative of this place and letting it sort of emerge through us as individuals. It was almost like these lakes that we found, Stones Lake, Three Island Lake and Kingsford Lake chose us but long before we even got here. And just to tap in and let it, to, to basically acknowledge it, I think was, was part of that reckoning. And there were three really important questions that we posed to each other at the beginning of the project. And the first one was, what is trauma? The next one was, how do we access the trauma? And the third one was, how do we move through or how do we move past the trauma? So I felt that if we stood still for a very long time, <laughs> I thought that was a great idea to, to try to identify the points of pain that we have in our body and try to find any emotional connection that we have with those points or images or colours or anything really that we identified with those points as a means to understand it more, feel it to its to to a point where 
it can become quite intense and then hopefully move through or past that in some way. I really wanted to see how both Janine and Joshua identified trauma and access trauma to help develop the technique of how do we then push into a semi-choreographed improvisational realm where we can just tune into the greater narrative space where the spirit can speak through us and to us as a way of breaking through that trauma. That was the energy that this technique was trying to tap into. How do we find this rawness of this authentic self that can just be present to pain, but also the expression of joy that can come out of that? No one needs to know what your trauma is. That's the most important thing. It's no one's business. It's just about like you as an individual going on that journey. And if you don't get to those moments in the, in the process where you're looking at shadow, the breakthrough, and hope, like not necessarily everyone will get at those points. That's fine. It's all part of the individual journey. In the morning session, my breakthrough character came, which because I was in my shadow self, and then my fellow performers started putting ochre all over my cape and and empowering me and I felt that in my physicality, I felt that in the energy of the room and that was quite, that was a, an amazing transformative point for me where people around me believed in who I was even though at that point in time there was no belief in myself, there was quite, all those negative thoughts were piling on top of me and, and the energy of that was pushing me down and all of a sudden I was lifted. And that breakthrough can happen so quickly. I think that's a really liberating experience for people to be part of when they know that whatever they offer on stage is fine. I mean, even though it is choreographed in a way, there's a freedom within that. That, as I said yesterday, when we came to that place where we went, shit, another hour, what are we going to do? And I was like, okay, we've got to pull something out. So it just came out, there's the ochre on the floor and the painting, and then all of a sudden I find myself picking up the eucalyptus leaf and like, you know, swishing it around and then smoothing myself with it. It became this organic thing and it was fine. That was all part of the process. I felt a lot of pressure on myself because I knew the technique that I was bringing into this you had to experience it to understand it. And sometimes that transferred into me putting pressure on the group. I found it very interesting when we were engaging with our shadows, that came up for me in a really significant way and challenged me again and humbled me greatly when we actually hit the floor and performed this. I'm really looking forward to who I'm gonna be the next time we dive in and look at this reckoning again, I believe that it's that's going to be the true telling of what the reckoning has done for me now when we revisit it. For me, it's been a really humbling experience and it was very transformative. There were moments where I wanted to cry, but I also was able to get something back that I think had been taken away. Going through that seven hours yesterday, I feel enlivened, I feel humbled, I feel bolder, but softer.
engaging with community too and other First Nations artists has been hugely transformative. I've not had that opportunity before. What we're doing here by bringing that acknowledgement, that reflection, listening to those spirits and engaging with them, we're giving ourselves over to become vessels for communication that's beyond what we can perceive ourselves in our own minds or out in the world. It's actually got a lot back to some original ideas and regards to one So from that first idea is often the, the best idea, or not the best idea, but it's the idea that sort of seems to see a lot of the information that then brings forward what the final product may be. Definitely you could let this process evolve into a different group or people or community. Even the people we bring on board need to know about because it's a collaboration involved. There's no one in charge as such because it's quite a safe methodology that works on the individual's own sort of reckoning with both themselves and the site. Um, yeah, so if you do want to see the seven-hour performance, you can watch a Facebook kind of live feed of that uh, from my website. If you go to uh, theatre, you'll find the reckoning links under that. Um, yeah, so we'll be doing this next year. Um, the aim is to do a 24-hour performance. <laughs> And it's that in Perth again? It's the yes, same. it's in the same, same place. Yeah, same pickers supporting it again. Wow. Yeah. So hopefully we can have a camp out and people can yeah, go out. Yeah, we're going to do like a feast and sort of thing. That's what I think. Everyone will go through this. Yeah. <laughs> we and Janine might rally against the 24 hours. For a long time. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's good. So. Yeah, so I guess we've got like maybe 20 minutes for some questions. Or reflections. Yeah, if there's anything you want to share. How important, I was just wondering with the video in that, in that footage, then how important is that to the work? And did, did you respond to that? I didn't see it. Uh, the video was, um, was sort of as we were in the performance moving around with us. Oh no, I mean the, there was like footage on the screen oh. being projected. Oh yeah, so yeah, I, I kind of chucked that in there so we had something uh, to kind of back us up and it also helped us to time when our yeah, transitions happened. Right. So we had the footage of an excavation that was taking place on the corner of my blog um, which was sort of symbolic of us doing that excavation work of ourselves as well and bringing, bringing things up uh, that have been buried and then the lakes was just to give that image of what that land looked like before it got developed. It's called recapitulation. Yeah. And I think for that segment, we actually uh, sat in the little lake next to the museum oh, and yeah. the art gallery, and we wrote letters to the lake. Hmm. Um, and different things happened while we were writing those letters as well. That kind of made into made its way into that, and then we. Um, recorded those letters and, and let them interweave and overlap 
over that imagery as well. And I think we actually sat back at that stage and allowed ourselves to sit sort of with the audience and yeah. just let that kind of yeah. wash over us yeah. as well. So there was like, there was talking in footage as well. Yeah. Yeah. Track. yeah. yeah. Only so, on that last one. Last one. And yeah. we had a lot of sounds during it um, because we had our words. So I think I was working with fish as used for hunting. I think there was other ones as well and like, um, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right. So these are certain texts that would keep repeating and then they'd change in context depending on what else was emerging at that time or what action was, was coming out. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the, um, I guess, the, the preparation or the, the rehearsal of, of ritual practice, I'm guess I'm really interested in that in terms of you know as soon as you set something you, you kill it. So, in terms of that that freedom of structure or that fluidity of of structure, like what are the things that you did put in place for the reckoning? The improvisational element is the major element required for ritual performance to keep it live. Um, so you can have little, like our structure was like the video that helped us with the timing when we knew, okay, we're moving into a different improvisational framework at this time, but it's always an improvisational framework. And had you ever done the seven yeah. hours before no, seven we hours? We did, the most we did was an hour. Uh, yeah, great. <laughs> so, yeah. We, so that's why I thought like by that time we sort of done after lunch and I think we're into, I thought we were into lunch. But, yeah. The tail end of it. And Which you tried to tell us so we had three hours left. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's when the exhaustion happens. And exhaustion is really interesting because exhaustion then brings about these things that happen from performances that just can't be replicated. And um, as part of the Kia, which is the work I did, that was something I was interested in, like doing 20 minute ritual performance. And was that, and that set? That was, um, yeah, that was set, but in a way that it had to be set. Yeah. Because we couldn't, it was a competition, and so you yeah. can't go, and there was a certain amount of time you had. Um, and also the space itself was put to demarcated, like it was very, it was very distinct. But within that, we tried to play a lot with um, our own sort of, I suppose, elongation of time when people feel it. Um, and, you know, it didn't didn't work. And I think this is the thing, like, it's just, it was an experiment in a way. It wasn't really something I went there as, like, this is a competition winner. Like, it was sort of more just like an experiment, which is probably what I like to do. I like to experiment a lot with the things I do. Um, and so I think, like, looking back at it now, it wasn't really the right context because I think it killed a lot of it. It looked a bit like in some of the footage, it looked a bit like playing with puppets, especially the costume that then became, and the lighting was going about that, but it won't. Um, <laughs> it's just a, like, yeah, it was just a, it, it was a difficult space, but I think in this context, when we, and it was durational, and some durational artists, that was really difficult as well. Um, in this context, the, the reckoning, I think the seven hours actually allowed us to actually have really good. Um, sink our teeth into something really quite deep and like for me a 24-hour performance will um, escalate that and I don't know bring us to something else. <laughs> 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 yeah, something. Catonic. 
Yeah. Um, so I say, following on from Elle's question, because I was interested in that process of choreography and rehearsal as well. But now that you know you're going to do this again and in a bigger form, how do you kind of iterate but not overthink or, you know, like take the bits that you feel like worked but continue that structure that's really free? It's The exercises are focused around um, developing that sense of connection and getting resources from that. So, and then because it's in that improvisational framework, it, it's just the jumping across. It's just stretching it up. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's not too difficult. And I think, yeah, that does build on your questions as well. Like I think a lot of the uh, preparing work is basically psychotherapy in a way. It's, it's, yeah, they're all activities that help to dissolve that ego so that yeah. you can be present in the improvisation that's, and not yeah, stuck that's in your head. thing about the ego is to take it out from, because like I say in the eye, I really don't feel it's my work. There's so many things in that work that I, you know, it just came. It just came. <laughs> and, you know, that's what, and it's funny because like a lot of people, when they see, when I work with people, there's very little elements of myself in the work. And it's funny because someone mentioned, oh, look, you know, like we couldn't really tell like it was your work. I said, well, that's actually really good because it's a collaboration. <laughs> and as a collaboration, you're supposed to actually have like all elements of the work in, you know. And so for me, I think like, you know, it, it does feel in many ways like there was something in there that was moving in us that was directing us to make the end product that you saw on that day. Um, that wasn't really me, wasn't Pella, wasn't Janine, it was something else. There were mm. a lot of things that were telling us, especially the first day we went there when yes. there was things going on in Pika, like there was uh, like loud bangs, and, um, things fell down. Um, oh gosh, that's Yeah, <laughs> and I think we, we, we'd gone into it with the intention mm. of having a fire element as yeah, well, but when we actually engaged mm. with the space, it was the water element that came up and that we were dealing with. So, there's that sense of having to let go constantly as yeah. part of that process if you want it to yeah. actually be alive. So, yeah. yeah. And what happened in the moment when the audience were first there? Uh, that process kind of prepared you enough for that? Having them, uh, yeah, we had it so that the audience could walk in and out as they wish. So we had various people kind of come throughout the day. Um, I think there was one moment which we all shared when someone walked in and it kind of killed the vibe, mm. but it was just one person and I'm not... You mean the, the way they walk, they, their they, entry? There's just the entry. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was an inch, there was a moment in the work where we all went... And we kind of lost, it, lost, lost our it. connection. And I think it's probably when this person... I don't know who it was. It wasn't who we thought it was. No, it wasn't. Yeah. It was just like, the person came in and it's all like, we just, all three of us went. Just dropped out of it. Just dropped out, yeah. yeah. We just knew that, yeah. And I think it's the thing of like, um, when you talk about audiences for this type of work, and this is another thing I'm interested in, is like how to frame that um, when you're talking to presenters and all sorts of people about this thing. Um, I often like to see audiences as witnesses, and this is the thing that weighs in as used, and I've often, I think this terminology has come from, yeah. <laughs> a lot from weighs in a nice construction of like how we look at the way of the ritual. Because I think, because weighs in, she works a lot with actual ritual performance over in Southeast Asia, 
So she's been to these um, festivals like the Hungry Ghost Festival where she told me that she witnessed um, some guy over, I think, uh, probably eight, ten hours. And all he did was basically just, um, he was given chickens and he just break the necks and he just drink the blood, break the necks, drink the blood. So this constant sort of repetition of this sort of breaking and drinking the blood. And, and this happened over a period of time and she said like, you, you just couldn't, that person wasn't human. They sort of had left their body and had evolved into something else. And so these, these, these festivals aren't designed as, I suppose, a performative thing. It's more, I think, people become witnesses to it. And so I think it's difficult in a performance context, especially in a performing arts context, to um, see um, how, you know, ritual, especially live ritual that we particularly do, how an audience fits into that. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of, like that requires them to hold the space hold a little space bit. Little, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and just I think after that experience. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's also a way that we can carve the space as well. And I mm-hmm. think there's a constant conversation I've got, particularly with how you engage an audience, and that sort of, I suppose, quite could be considered quite esoteric and um, mm-hmm. not really narrative driven. Um, like yeah. next door improvisational yeah. and involving them somehow, yeah. there's definitely room to explore that. Which is where the fire came in. The fire initially was a way to engage people in that yarn about what they might have seen, which is why I wanted the fire. And I wanted the fire inside, but obviously it's going to happen, so it's going outside. Um, so, but I got my fire inside eventually. So. <laughs> With a candle. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about? Like the idea of ritual performance, which you mentioned before, and then the tension between that and improvisation. Because when I think of ritual, like one of the basic thoughts of it, I think of what you mentioned then, the, the breaking the neck, the drinking the blood, something that happens again and again, and something that's got like, almost like codified rules for people to, 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 to enable like different people to repeat it. So like if I come up with a ritual, I could give you the rules and repeat it. I treat it very differently. So for me, the ritual is about um, going into a ritual state of being. So it's the state of being and that's being repeated that is is the ritual. But that state of being is about connecting not only with the depths of the subconscious, but the heights of the transcendent and uniting that together. So you've got a full spectrum dialogue happening. and and that takes repetition to maintain that mm. sensibility. Yeah, and um, how do you get that? So the improvisation helps with that because it's taking you out of your preconceived ideas of, of what should be into the moment of what is, and it helps release those past patterns and open up into that creative space where that um, full spectrum communication <laughs> can can happen and emerge spontaneously. That's kind of the core of the idea. I think I'll go one about, and I actually mm. consider it to be a lifestyle. So yes. That's, that's, that's how I look at it. Like yeah. it's, I don't leave it. Um, so I try to embed it in everything I do as a lifestyle. And so it, when it, it's like I can come from like doing a pharmacy shift and go straight into that. Yeah. And I don't need any practice. It's all part of my lifestyle. Um, so that's how I've built it over the years that I can actually 
leave something that's so out of that world and go into that world without having any warmer. It's actually part of this lifestyle that I've built. So in another, another sense, the, the bookmarking method that I have, the, the repetition is not only in the maintaining that sensibility, but in repeating the, the journey works, the blocked journey works, and having those bookmarks. Right. Yeah, that would be the, the way of punctuating it. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Got to figure out how to. And <laughs> um, when you were telling your story about the performance space, performance in uh, New York, do you feel like <clears throat> where do you feel like your responsibilities, you know, in this kind of performance, uh, to you know hold the audience and keep them safe and bring them along versus the kind of more witness, yeah. the um, the and wonderful. I think, yeah, it's interesting because I was tasked with that job of holding the space. Yeah, and obviously you had different expectations versus yeah, the reality of it. And, yeah, before I because I, I suppose in a way I felt like I had to be really quite clear and concise and it was chaotic that yeah. day. There were people fainting, <laughs> yeah. like being dragged out of the audience. There was people like leaving, going, not, not doing what they're supposed to do. Like it was, And the thing is like you can't control that and, you know, no matter how much preparation I would have had, all that there was never going to be enough and so it's I think it's about I think it's about the intent of the work when people realize the intent of the work is and this comes back to the ego as well like we left all that ego out the door that day there was nothing about that was my work it was not SJ's work it was not Carly's no moment of light to shine when she cut the back and that sort of thing it was just like, it was just this process of like, these are the things we do. We're doing over three hours, and at the end of it, something will happen, we don't know what, but you know, we don't know, it's gonna, we don't know what's gonna happen, because we never actually did it. I mean, you can't prepare yourself for something like yeah. that. Um, and so it's it's sort of this thing of like, um, I, think it's all, I think as an audience member, as long as you, you can feel the, the true intention of something, you can feel when something is actually really true, and so, I think when you know that that is, you're witnessing something that is almost beyond the spectrum of performance, the spectrum of being rehearsed, that you're actually able to engage with that even more. Um, there were people in that room that just stood like, the whole time, with, the whole time they were engrossed I mean, by the fact that someone's back was being cut. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't usually, you wouldn't think that, but because of the intention of what that was, yeah, um, it was. It was really, you know, powerful, and you didn't need to necessarily hold the audience all the time. There was a freedom for them to actually go in that space, and I also was involved in, like, you know, getting them to be part of that ritual. By I think I had to get them to roll up durries as part of that work, and then also to put in some small herbs into this fire that we made as part of the work as well. So there was. You know, that was a participatory moment as well. But outside of that, they just sat there and watched it. And I think it's the intention, and when you take the ego away from this is your work, that this then audiences can engage with that. Give me an interesting idea of um, 
like in the game world where you, where you get these TikToks at the moment where people sort of stand there and offer people to go on a quest <laughs> with them. <laughs> you, know, you could almost give your audience yeah, I think that was like, also your fire keeper and yeah. pass it on. Mm. If you leave, pass it on to someone else who could maybe start something like that yeah. as a way of getting them involved. So they're yeah. taking on responsibilities as well. I guess the only thing, the other thing I find interesting is the, it's obviously maybe a tricky thing to prepare audiences for or even market this kind of work. So is it the sort of, how do you go about that? About getting, getting them to come see it? I think they're private with it as well. I don't know how to Yeah, I think that's, yeah, like that. that's a great video. Very, very yeah. effective. That yeah. seems to be really effective. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> like that. But obviously before the first one, you know, you yeah, have I mean, that. Yeah, it was just so hard. Like, I mean, I think, I think the benefit or why, because I got the money through this Australia Council initiative called, um, something, um, uh, something works. It was like some, you gave an idea, it was a pitch, basically you gave an idea for the, the most ambitious work you had and you got it. And it was made, it was made for the ATSI funding round that I um, had panel, but, and I think because it was sort of something that related a lot to mob that I got the money for that. But obviously they've done it through another um, avenue. They were like, oh, okay, what's going on? Like they wouldn't understand it. Like the, I think the benefit of it being that the fact that it was relatable to mob that was the reason why this project eventually got the money it had. It's definitely a gateway, it's, it's a gateway. spiritual. Yeah, and um, I think people yeah. understood it. But if you to go to another panel or someone else that wasn't really quite, I suppose, um, um, constant of the fact that you know, this is quite an important subject. And I think this is the thing, like we've tried to pitch it to people, but the idea of like, getting bums on seats and that sort of thing. It's not really what this work's about. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. An artist in Sydney and they were like a kind of similar ritual practice based thing and a lot of work around ego and, and they were saying there was such a disconnect between you in the work it's really possible but then as soon as you have to become the producer for the work mm -hmm. the ego is the thing that actually yeah. gives it a pathway. Absolutely. And they found that insurmountable like it just was yeah. such a hard leap to yeah. make because that was not how the work yeah. was for them yeah. but it's such a it's such a huge one that so many artists yeah, must have to do with Ben Gordon assisting us and this is the other thing I don't like we're talking to people about and they're like, what sort of product is it I'm like well it's not a product <laughs> and it's definitely not what I want to see if he is but in a way you do have to have it as something like that when you just present as this is what it is. Um, I suppose it's maybe a spiritual retreat. It's almost like a festival of trauma as well. a spiritual journey. Right? <laughs> all the questions. Sort of, yeah. There's a lot of things we could talk about, like what this is, what it isn't. And festival of transcendence. Yeah, I just, you know, I think in many ways it's this thing of like, you just have to experience it. But I think the video really does do a good job of actually packaging something like this and being able to engage with those people that need a product. Um, it's just like then how do you then communicate that to people that aren't necessarily familiar with that sort of language. Um, and I mean obviously if you kind of have to communicate really hard, you know, quite 
them. I, it's not the right people. <laughs> At the end of the day, I think it's also going to um, sort of like get rid of the people that we don't need as part of that process. <laughs> so if people, if you're going to communicate with a venue and they just after the fifth time, they don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> you're not the right people, so yeah. just move on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the idea with the reckoning is to travel around with the method to different sites like where of, of significance and to work in those sites yeah. as but well. To give that methodology to those communities and, and then to pass they on. become, mm. that's their performance. Mm. So once again, it's not my performance, but it's it also their methodology is how they see it. Yeah, we're not going to be strict on like you must do this. Like it's all just like this is the methodology. You can you adjust it to the way that you see yeah. what you need to do. Yeah. yeah. I think what's interesting for us at the moment is doing a second residency in the same location. Yeah, how do we do that? Yeah. It's like we've already transformed that space and activated that space, so how do we do that again? Are you excited by that or a bit kind of tentative? Oh, I'm, I'm a bit tentative. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um, there's definitely more that can be done there, more exploration, yeah, so it should sure. be fine. Yeah. Can I ask, how, how do you, I was going to say invite, but maybe you don't invite the audience or witnesses. Yeah. What is the door that they come in through? metaphysically and literally? The first one I did, um, deciding unity with a, where I crucified marriage accidentally, <laughs> um, that was just whoever happened to be there at the time and it just happened spontaneously. Mm -hmm. I think with the reckoning it was almost similar. We didn't really advertise it. No, we didn't actually. Very was it ticketed? No. It was just it was ticketed. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. yeah, it was ticketed, but it wasn't, it was... Not like, not like, yeah, it was a free event. event. Yeah, it was a free event. Yeah, it was a ticket. They yeah. had to get, come in through, yeah. Pick up. Pick up. Yeah. But I think. It stays as long as you want and, yeah, yeah. 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 It's more just like a few bit of word of mouth, like, oh, yeah, yeah we're doing this thing. Yeah. 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 Very, very low key. Very low key, yeah. I did a lot of marketing. <laughs> 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 with the videos, I think, sort of focuses on is getting that. Yeah. Yeah. Those creative developments that have documented. Yeah. Yeah. When was it? It was, I think it was around the same time. Were you supposed to be in the space? Maybe March. Gosh, I think no. It was, it was July. It was July. July. Yeah, it was July. It was raining. Yeah. It was raining. <laughs> yeah. I wish you'd have marketed it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, <know. laughs> yeah. I think because we had no idea yeah, had what our two weeks yeah. was going to do. We had no images. Like the images we had were very. Like, yeah. Like the thing is, like we. Didn't AHAM pitch at the same time as this, and we didn't have any footage. So the footage we had was very like the footage that we shot on the, the GoPro, the GoPro right. on our iPhone. So it was very, you know, like there was really not much we had. Um, and I think this is the thing. Like I think we often you can get seduced by that, um, and I think that's what maybe. When you get seduced by that, that's when you become more invested in it. Mm -hmm. But you know, when you've got like footage of like, you know, because I don't, I don't know, we just, I just don't take a lot of stuff. I like a lot of footage. Um, I know a lot of artists do, and they like to document things, but I just don't do that. Um, I just think I'm 
I got lazy. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably the way to put it. Um, but yeah, I just, um, yeah, it just, we just didn't really, I don't think we marketed it really that well. Um, it was sort of like word of mouth a lot. And also it was a, it was a strange time because it was around the time that COVID was sort of happening and so there was, because that's what we did for live feed because we wanted people to still see it and not necessarily come into the space if they didn't feel it. Mm. They felt safe too. Because it's just literally after our first or second or third lockdown, I think it was, when we were told not to move around and like, because yeah. um, Arnie Lynette's space to come up and then she couldn't come up. And so there was a lot of people that couldn't come that we wanted to leave in space so they couldn't be part of it because of COVID and also, yeah. Just probably, yeah, I think the marketing, but at the same time, it wasn't. Really we didn't really, like, I yeah. think we, we only had two weeks and we had no idea how far we were going to yeah, get. Yeah. It, yeah. it was very kind of a vague. So you didn't even know if you were going to do a duration of I don't, well, that, that was the intent, but I don't yeah. think we knew how we were going to get there. Really. Yeah, we just sort of got there yeah. those two weeks and, like, it's like <laughs> two years. Yeah, yeah, and just it kind of. It was extremely long, like, it just felt like Thursday, I think it was like Thursday. Just fired off. Yeah, fired off. Yeah. I think that's the thing, like when you work in that way, you just exhaustion becomes quite evident. Um, and then the process becomes like it feels like it becomes ages and ages. The second week, I think that's when we were like, okay, yeah. we're going to have yeah, a yeah, performance, performance we'll be able to put this yeah. stuff into something yeah, yeah. and just explore how that might work on the floor mm. for a performance. Mm. Um, mm. So it didn't leave us a lot of time for inviting yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will you continue to engage? Arnie Lynette, maybe bring the works out. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, like, she's from here, so that definitely felt like we needed to engage somebody that was yeah. on this area. And the thing is, like, we, we did try to engage, but there was just very little notification from people. It was hard to get in yeah. contact. Um, I don't know if that was COVID and everything, everyone's lives being disrupted, yeah. you know. Uh, we did have a couple conversations. There was one meditation we did, and I got this vision of um, two, like, giant sisters sort of made out of stars, and they were, like, walking through uh, the lake. So I wanted to chase down some elders to find out if there was any stories of two women because I'd heard about three women or the, the single one, but I never heard of two women. Um, so I think it was Vaughan yeah. um, that we spoke to. He was the guy that was here for the yeah, welcome. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I never saw him. Yeah. But I spoke to him on the phone and he said that his grandmother had a story of two sisters um, that had walked in that area. But I never got to get to the bottom mm. of that story. So there's um, threads there to explore further. Yeah. Seems like it would be like a really great work for the Biennale Rio. Like it's the sort of thing that they would, I think, mm. be interested in. Producer on it. <laughs> 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 yeah, we're the producer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think with the, this sort of process, uh, something I was wanting to say about it is that when you open yourself up in that way, um, forget who writes about it, there's, there's an epistemologist, she writes about it, how ancient knowledge and information can rise up mm. and come through. So a lot of that, the fact that I had that vision, it's not like I go around having visions all the time, but being in the space and really 
being willing to sort of allow what could come come is a really significant part of ritual performance and practice is yeah. you're really wanting to connect with that full spectrum. Um, and and some, yeah, sometimes it's hard to when you engage collaborators for them to be to tap, in. tap into that. Yeah, um, not see it as crazy. No, or yeah, they often uh, either go to a textbook lens and like, Work. Can we do it another? Like it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it. Sometimes you need to get the right people as well, and it just so happened that we were the right people. Yeah, it just worked. Well. It just worked well. Even though there was like many, you know, things happening throughout the whole process, we just sort of came together. I think, like I said, like taking the ego away from us as performers is a really big part of it. It can and, be scary too. Yeah. Um, like, you know, that object I found and then finding out it's like a murder weapon and um, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. It's like, whoa, what am I tapping into? And it's hard to kind of let yourself really go there and trust in that process because it can confront you. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, that practice comes with a warning and sometimes you talk to people about enlightenment and it's like, well, would you recommend it? And they all say no. <laughs> like, like, it's hard work. I think we're done for time. Yeah, so, we're done for time. Yeah. thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. <laughs>